Welcome to the Criswell College Chapel Podcast. Through each semester, the entire campus gathers for worship through song and a biblical, challenging, and encouraging message. Speakers include pastors, professors, and local business and nonprofit leaders. At Criswell, we believe spiritual life is vital for everyone. And that is why Criswell's goal in chapel services is to emphasize loving the Lord with all our heart, all our mind, and all our strength. We make leaders who are ambassadors, cultivators, peacemakers, problem solvers, and professionals. While chapel services are tailored to students, we are encouraged by all our guest speakers by knowing that the practicality of what is being spoken is for everyone. To learn more about Criswell College, visit criswell.edu. Thank you for joining us. Today we will be hearing from Dr. Ty Kieser. Dr. Kieser is Assistant Professor of Theology at Criswell College. Prior to coming to Criswell, he taught and studied theology at Wheaton College. He, his wife, and their six children can frequently be found playing pickleball, hockey, card games, or watching a movie. As a result of living in Illinois for most of his life, he is a hopeless Bears, Bulls, Cubs, and Blackhawks fan. Academically, his research focuses on the doctrines of the Trinity and Christology, hoping that the church might focus on the wonder of the triune God and his beauty in the face of Jesus Christ. Without further ado, Dr. Ty Kieser. There's a story about a prominent 20th century theologian, gives a lecture, and there's Q&A time after the lecture's over, and a student raises their hand and says, how would you summarize the Christian life in one sentence? And the expectation is there's gonna be something clever, right, creative. This is a unique theologian. This answer's gotta be witty. He sits there, pauses, and says, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And today, as the new professor in theology, I find it my task to simply elaborate on the first part of that claim, to communicate that God loves me, God loves you. And we will do so today, looking at Romans 5, so please turn or scroll there, but preferably turn because books. And we will um, look here at what Paul is encouraging us to do in Romans 5, specifically the, the call to rejoice, rejoice in God. Paul repeats this uh, three times here in verses 2, 3, and 11. And my point will be that call, Paul calls us to rejoice in God regardless of our external circumstances because God loves you, regardless of your external circumstances and that God loves you regardless of your internal condition. That is, how things are going out there and how things are going in here are no reflection of God's love for you. Instead, the reflection, the indication, or as Paul will say, the demonstration of God's love is in Jesus. Starting off here, my first point will be that God loves you regardless of your external circumstances. So Paul in verse three, beginning in verse two actually says, now we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. An expectation here is that there's rejoicing in various circumstances, right? Different circumstances, same response, rejoicing. But how is that? Why is that that we can rejoice in suffering and in 
uh, times going well. I think Paul gives the answer of the nature of suffering, which is his um, logical argument here, rejoice in, in suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance. But then if you trace the becauses in this sentence and the, the four whys, as my three-year-old says, for why. You chase the four whys, you see four, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So how is it that we can rejoice in suffering and in circumstances that are going well? Because of the nature of suffering and because God loves you and has demonstrated that in Jesus because Jesus has died for you. Now this claim is semi-counterintuitive, at least emotionally for me. Because I'm inclined to think that when things are going well, God exceptionally loves me, right? And when things are going poorly, it's a reflection of God's diminished love for me. So a silly example would be a friend of mine and I were going to golf course and we're kind of late for our tea time and so he's driving and speeding and he risks, risks it and goes to the very front row and a spot opens up right then. He pulls in, stops, puts the car in park, looks over at me and says, God loves me. As if the, fr- the front row parking spot was a reflection of God's love, okay? There are less silly examples, I think, in my life, recently even, of people who take the flip side of that. So for example, someone came to me and said, my parents are getting divorced. It doesn't feel like God loves me. My mom died. It doesn't feel like God loves me. Now, it's tempting to think that these circumstances are a reflection of God's love for us. Yet that's not what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 5. Paul is saying that God shows his love for us not in making everything go well for you. Not in making everything go easy. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So if you want an accurate gauge of God's love for you, do not look at your bank account. Do not look at your um, dating status on Facebook. Do not look at your um, roommate struggles. Do not look at the future prospects you have. Look instead to Jesus. And as we continue to elaborate on what it means to say that God loves you, Jesus loves you. I want to note something here in verse six because we see that the doer of the action in verse six is Christ. Christ dies for the ungodly. Christ is the subject of the verb here. However, if you're paying attention, you notice that in verse eight, the subject switches. It's no longer Christ, but, the, but God is the subject. God shows his love for us. Now, I take God most likely to be a reference to the father because of verse 10. So God by the death of his son. So God is likely a reference to the father because of the distinction with the son. So God is likely father here in verse eight. So we have to ask the question, I think, how is it that we have two doers of actions and one person gets credit for the action that another person did? This is a little bit peculiar. So my mom does this thing and my mom was just here 
last weekend. Some of you actually got to meet her. And she's cool. She's way cooler than me. And she does this thing where she goes out, she finds a gift that's really thoughtful. She purchases the gift. She delivers the gift to a particular person and she signs my name on it as if I also gave this person this gift. However, I did nothing in the giving of this gift. I literally did nothing. I deserve no credit, especially if it was a bad gift. I deserve no blame, right? There is really no sense in which my, or I get to demonstrate anything about me. No, no characteristic of mine is demonstrated in the giving of that gift because we're two different persons, right? Two different act- actors. Likewise, my sister's birthday is in a few days, and I'm going to get her a gift, and my mom's name will not be on the card. I will pay for it, I will pick it out, and I will give it to her as a demonstration of my generosity and my love for my sister, not my mom's. Okay? However, imagine a situation in which my mom and I decided, hey, we can collaborate this year. We'll both go mutually choose a gift will then mutually purchase the gift and only one of us will deliver it. Is it fair to say that that action is a demonstration of my love even if my mom delivers it? Yes or no? Somebody nod for me. Yes, I think it is. Okay, thank you. That action is a demonstration because both of us shared in a relevant feature, in this case, money, okay? In this case, in the case of Romans 5, Jesus and the Father must share in a relevant feature, that is, life and love, if the act of Jesus is going to demonstrate the Father's love. The Father and Son must share in life and love, and I would add, knowledge, will, power. Basically, I'm saying, in order for this to be true, the doctrine of the Trinity must also be true. Jesus must be God and must share with the Father in divine love, life, power, wisdom, knowledge, etc. This is not simply, I don't think, an imposition of theological jargon onto the text, nor is it simply a advertisement for paying attention in Dr. Barry's theology class, although it probably is that too. I think what it is is a demonstration of the way that our view of God is shaped by and shapes our reading of scripture, and further, our view of God shapes our relationship with God. And I think here's why. If you're anything like me, it's actually not hard to believe that Jesus loves you. I can actually fairly easily accept that Jesus loves me. The more difficult claim is that God the Father loves me. If I'm not thinking well, I'm tempted to believe that the Father kind of tolerates me. I'm like the, the neighbor that gets invited to the party by the son. The son's like, hey, come on, you're my friend, you can come to the party. And the father's the host and is like, I guess I can feed one more kid, it's fine. My son likes him, he's probably okay. I'm tempted to think that. By the way, that's not true, right? <laughs> okay. Why is that not true? How do we know that's not true? Because whose love is demonstrated on the cross? The love of Jesus? Not for me. Yeah, it is. The love of the Father also demonstrated on the cross? Yeah, it definitely is. God the Father loves you. 
God, the triune God, loves you. How do you know? The cross. So regardless of external circumstances, we can be confident that God, the triune God, loves us. Second point, God loves you regardless of your internal condition. So Paul's making an argument for which there's a fancy Latin name that will not be on the quiz, nor do you need to know. And basically what Paul is doing here is he's making an example of the extreme moves here. So, so look at verses six, 10, or 6, 8, and 10. Paul says, for while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So, God loved you even while you were weak, an enemy, and a sinner. Now you have been adopted into God's family, called sons and daughters of God. Does God still love you? Yeah. If he loved you when you were in this state over here, how much more easily can we accept that God loves us in this state as son and daughter of him? So I loved my kids when they had diapers on, could not care for themselves whatsoever, and did little more than vomit on me often, right? If I love them in that state, how much more easily can they accept that now that they can pick up their own Legos, I love them? Amen. <laughs> again, you might say, okay, Ty, again, we've heard this before, we're, we're loved unconditionally. And I, I recognize that we all know this, but I want to introduce a distinction between formal and functional theology. Formal theology is kind of what you say you believe, and functional theology is what you live out of what you believe. And the distinction that I think makes this truth most obvious is prayer. That is, we believe intellectually that God loves us regardless of how we're feeling that day, regardless of what we did last week, regardless of um, how holy we are. But functionally, we come into prayer, and if you're like me, you do one of two things. Number one, you avoid it. You actually just are tempted to avoid praying. I don't really want to pray because then I'm reminded of my lack of holiness. Or number two, I get into prayer sometimes. Again, this is bad. Don't do this. I'm just saying, I'm confessing to you. This is how I sometimes am tempted to think. I get into prayer sometimes and I'm trying to convince God that I'm good. Lord, remember that time I did that nice thing for you? And what I'm doing is I'm attempting to deny God's unconditional love for me, saying, saying functionally, God must love me only when I'm good or when I'm holy. And as a friend of mine says, prayer is not a place to be good. Prayer is a place to be honest. Prayer is a place to receive the love of God who loves us without condition or regardless of our internal condition. So if this is true, what difference does it make in our lives? I think I've given a few examples here, so our prayer life is changed, hopefully, because of this. Our view of God and our relationship to him in moments of 
discouragement and doubt are hopefully changed because of this. But I want to add one more difference that it makes. And I'm going to move to Romans 14 and 15 to do this. I have some reasons for moving specifically here. Um, For the sake of time, I'm not going to tell you those, but you can ask me later. Looking at Romans 14 and 15, I see two summary phrases in Romans 14 and 15. There's two claims. Paul says in 14, verse 13, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. One summary phrase. Second summary phrase, 15, 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Paul's two bits of advice when I read them, remind me of a scene from Ted Lasso. So Ted Lasso, thank you, Abel, uh, is a, Ted Lasso is in the show, an American football coach who gets moved to England to coach soccer. He has never been to England, nor has he ever coached soccer before. And he's a fairly goofy guy. And there's this scene, my favorite scene, it's probably on YouTube, and he gets challenged to a game of darts by an adult bully, basically. And Ted starts losing. He's down to his last three darts. And, and if he doesn't make basically three perfect, three perfect dart throws, he loses. And the bet, he loses the bet also. And Ted says this to the bully as he steps up to throw his last three darts. He says... Guys have underestimated me my whole life. And I never really understood why. It used to really bother me. Then one day I was driving my little boy to school and I saw this quote by Walt Whitman. That's falsely attributed, by the way. Painted on the wall there. It said, be curious, not judgmental. I like that. (whistles) Throws a dart. Triple 20. So I get back in my car, Ted Lasso says, and I'm driving to work and all of a sudden it hits me. All them fellas that belittled me were never curious. They thought they knew everything and they judged everyone and they judged everything. If, they're, if they were curious, they would have asked questions. Questions like, have you played much darts, Ted? Whack, triple 20. Which I would have answered, yes sir, every Sunday. And at a restaurant with my father from age 10, to 16 when he passed away. Whack, bullseye. The restaurant goes crazy, everybody's having fun, Ted wins. The point of the story, be curious, not judgmental. And I think this is actually what Paul is saying here in Romans 14 15, be curious, not judgmental. But when we ask what grounds this, why should we be curious, or, or how is it the case that we can be curious, not judgmental, to everyone that we meet. I think we have to leave Ted Lasso and all of his barbecue sauce slogans aside and have to turn back to Romans 5. How is it that we can be curious, not judgmental? It is when we recognize that God loves me without external condition, without regard to external conditions, and that God loves my neighbor without regard to what's going on in their life. So I don't need to put people down. 
I don't need to make people recognize how smart I am or how cool I am or how great I am as a person. Why? Because God has already given me the affirmation in Jesus that I am as loved as possible. Further, as I relate to my neighbor, I can look at that neighbor and say, I might disagree with everything that you're doing right now. I might disagree with what you're saying, how you're acting. I might dispositionally just not get along with you. You kind of like cringe when you're around them, right? Don't lie, you all have people like that. But, but, I can look at that person and say, God loves you. God loves you regardless of what's going on outside of your life and in your heart. God loves you. And I can relate in love to that person. I can be curious, not judgmental, toward that person because God loves me and God loves them. I want to close today with a prayer from a um, 300-year-old prayer book. So would you pray with me? Gracious God, our hearts praise you for the wonder of your love in Jesus. In him, your grace has almost outgraced itself. In him, your love to rebels has reached its height. And oh, to love you with a love like this. Our hearts are like stone. Melt them with your love. Our hearts are locked. Let your love be the master key to open it. O Father, we adore you for your great love and the gift of Jesus. O Jesus, we bless you for resigning your life for us. O Holy Spirit, we thank you for revealing to us this mystery. Amen. Thank you once again for listening to the Criswell Chapel podcast. Please make sure to visit criswell.edu to learn more about Criswell College. We hope that you will join us again soon. God bless you.